the bell. Thank you, Simon. Please keep that open. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, the testimony that it is to who you are and what you've done in human history. We ask that you would give us ears to hear it, hearts to receive it, and the will to put it into practice for Jesus' sake. Amen. This is <coughs> my home church, the church that I grew up in, St. James Croydon. As you can see from that little snapshot, it's a lovely church building, over 100 years old. Around the apse, which is the semicircular front section, you can just see it there, are these words in almost unreadably beautiful lettering. They say, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. It's a paraphrase from Psalm 29. You may be familiar with how that psalm opens. It says, ascribe to Yahweh, the Lord, ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor or the beauty of his holiness. And I stood there for many years. And if you stand in the first few pews in particular, you can you see your eyes are drawn to that lettering quite often. And as you stand there reading those beautiful words uh, in a beautiful church building, singing perhaps a well-loved hymn to a majestic organ with hundred or so other voices, it is quite easy to think, yes, I am worshipping the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I am ascribing to God the glory due his name. It's quite natural to feel a sense of rightness about the worship you're participating in. But what if, like me, that's your upbringing, your tradition, and then you find yourself not in a beautiful 130-year-old building? What if there's no organ? Instead, there's a band with guitars and drums or just a piano. What if there's no instruments? Is that still the same thing? What if the congregation's tiny and there are no lead singers or no decent lead singers? What if instead of majestic, theologically rich hymns, you're just singing pop songs, essentially? Or what if that is your tradition and you find yourself in a church like this? You think, this is also stale. This is also rigid. This isn't worship, is it? These sort of what-ifs have led to much church volatility. What people have dubbed over the last 30 or 40 years the worship wars... These worship wars have derailed church life, and it's easy to bemoan that. Is this really what we're fighting about? Can there be so much disagreement? And yet we, we sense that this isn't something we can just brush aside. That We sense that there is something valid here, that this, when it comes to worship of God, it can't just be a matter of personal taste, of preference. You like one style, I like another. That on some level there is a question of appropriateness, of rightness, that worship matters. That if there is a God who is worthy of worship at all, that that probably should be done rightly. Is it possible that there's an approach to worship that's more or less faithful than another? And we also know that worship is about more than just gathering. It's about more than what we do in a church service. That if God is God, then worship of him can't be restricted to that. 
how do we judge those outside church dimensions of worship? Is that just a matter of personal preference as well? We can kind of come to that conclusion when we think of singing and, and other things like that. But what about everything that doesn't include a church service? Joshua 22 shows us a worship war, doesn't it? Quite literally. Actions taken by various parts of the Israelite community, which lead to this great moment of volatility and tension. And at the heart of it is the question that lies at the heart of our own worship anxieties. What does right worship of God and wrong worship of God look like? Or rather, what does faithful and unfaithful worship of God look like? And if you're a long-time church person, maybe these are things that you ask yourself. There's a tension there. What does it look like? Maybe you're a visitor here. You know, maybe you're a stranger to the Christian faith. But if you're here, I imagine you're asking that question in some way, shape, and form. What does right worship of God look like? Well, the keynote of this chapter is fidelity, faithfulness, passionate fidelity to the Lord. And Joshua 22 shows us three features, three features common to a true worshipping community. Let's have a look at them. The first is a godly expectation. It's in the first eight verses, a godly expectation. You'll see that chapter 22 begins with Joshua commending the faithfulness of Reuben, Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. If you can't remember what this subset is, they were the ones who 40 years earlier when Israel first arrived at the borders of the Promised Land had been granted their land east of the Jordan on the condition that they would lead their brothers and sisters into the Promised Land when the time for conquest came. And you may remember in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua recharges them with fulfilling that pledge. And here we see that they've shown their fidelity to the Lord by keeping their word to Joshua, keeping their word to Moses. They've actioned their promise. I'm not sure if you've ever been part of a, a working environment where that sort of language is used. You know, you have a staff meeting and there's a task to be done. Something needs to be actioned. And someone says, I'll do that. And so at the next staff meeting, have you actioned that? Have you kept your word? Have you delivered? Whether you can turn that into a verb is another question, I'm not sure. But the eastern tribes have delivered. They have kept their words. They have helped secure Israel's rest. And so Joshua thanks them and he sends them back to their home with a command to keep being faithful to God. He sends them back with a godly expectation, an expectation of fidelity. What is that going to look like for them? Well, here we see it's expressed in faithful worship. That is the expectation that he gives them in verse 5. Only carefully obey the command and instruction that Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you. There are echoes there of Joshua 1. That was a big feature as they were about to enter the land. But also there's an emphasis there from the book of Deuteronomy that was missing from Joshua chapter 1. You might see it there. To love the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways, keep his commands, remain faithful to him, and serve him with all your heart and soul. Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Why? Why love God? Because he's not just God. He is your God. He's our God. And so the context for this godly expectation, this command, is instructive. What has your God, our God, done? Well, the summary passage in chapter 21, that, that, that describes, it reminds us what God has done. One writer describes this little 
summary passage, these last couple of verses of chapter 21, as the theological heart of the entire book of Joshua. God promises in action. We've seen them action, haven't we? It's not just the eastern tribes who have been faithful. God has kept his word. His promises well and truly have been kept. They're much bigger promises too. You'll see in verse 43 of chapter 21, they have their land. In verse 44, they have victory over their enemies. They have rest. The rest that God long ago promised them. And verse 45, none of the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Everything was fulfilled. And so while as we were reminded last week that their complete occupation of the land was not um, yet done, the possession of the land is. The Israelites are firmly established in the land. There is no power left in Canaan that can dislodge them. And this possession of the land, it confirms for Israel, and it confirms for us reading this, that the mission is accomplished because the Lord is faithful. Because the Lord is faithful. And so in light of that, Joshua says to the eastern tribes, return home and remain faithful to God. Faithfulness to God is always a response to his faithfulness to us. Right worship of God will always flow from the grace of God that we have received. That is why Joshua can send them off with this godly expectation. Remain faithful, worship God as he should be worshipped. So a godly expectation, that's a feature of a true worshipping community. Secondly, we see a godly vigilance is also part of a true worshipping community. A godly vigilance. The eastern tribes return to their land, but we're told on the way there, what do they do? Verse 10, they build a large, impressive altar. This is an instantly suspicious action. Instantly suspicious. Uh, What's an altar for? It's for sacrifice. It's for formalized worship. This is like red rag to a bull. This one act causes the entire Israelite community to assemble, to gather as one, in preparation for war against their eastern brothers and sisters. And in case you don't think that's a big deal, that is what they've been doing the whole time. They are preparing to do to their eastern brothers and sisters what they have had to do to the rest of the inhabitants of Canaan. Why? Why is this such a big deal? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 12 tells us There, Israel is commanded to offer their sacrifices only at the place the Lord your God will choose. Only at the place the Lord your God will choose. And if you just flip back a couple of pages to chapter 18, verse 1, you'll see that place the Lord has chosen. That place is Shiloh. That is where the tent of meeting has been set up. The tabernacle where sacrifice can be offered has been set up. Why this one place? Well, this one place stands in contrast to all the places that the Canaanites have been conducting their worship throughout the centuries. Worship that included orgies, worship that included human sacrifice, wherever and whenever they felt like it, however they felt like it. This one place, one way, was intended to preserve the purity of the worship of the one true God. Put simplistically, one altar, one faith, one One altar, one faith, one people. As one writer puts it, allow such worship wherever folks hankered to experience God and it would soon take on a Canaanite color. Soak up Canaanite belief, sport Canaanite practices, adore Canaanite gods. In short, it would, in one blow, kill both faithfulness to God and unity of Israel. 
And so the Western tribe's reaction is fundamentally a good thing. We should see it like that. They are exercising a godly vigilance. It's a righteous move. Yes, they jump to a particular conclusion, but they've got reason to, to be worried. They, the delegation that is sent to the Eastern tribes, they cite a couple of instances, don't they? They refer to the Baal Port Peor incident 40 years earlier when the Israelites first came to these borders. When Israelite men started sleeping with Moabite women and started sacrificing to their gods, in God's judgment, he sent a plague. 24,000 of their people died. And in their generation, the pain of Achan's sin is still very fresh. What do they say in verse 20? He wasn't the only one who died for his sin. They know that God takes sin seriously. That sin permitted brings judgment on all. That unfaithfulness tolerated will infect still more and if we trace this through to ourselves as God's people today the church how's our godly vigilance do we have a what we might call a passionate piety for things that we've seen happening in the church what's your response to teaching that says God wants you to have perfect physical health and abundant material wealth right now and if you don't have those things well you're not you're not blessed by God. How do you respond to that? How do you respond when you hear that people say, Jesus isn't actually God? Do people in the church say that? Or to news that an Anglican diocese has decided to bless same-sex unions, starting with two of its own clergy. The Western tribes, we see here, their response is an example of passionate piety. This is not what worship of God looks like. And continuing this way means disaster for you, for all of us. At the same time, it's also an example of restraint, isn't it? There is a warning here about going in, all guns blazing. We can be all too easily suspicious of those from other tribes. That's the flip side, isn't it? In fact, even with our own, within our own tribe, Sydney Reformed Evangelicals, Anglicans, we can impose shibboleths what the, the term from the bible identity markers that demonstrate our genuine fidelity and if someone doesn't seem to exhibit those well you're not really part of us the western tribes may fear the worst but they don't act quite that way not initially they may saddle up but they don't come in all guns blazing they send a delegation they ask for an explanation and as we see that's partly why this calamity isn't visited upon israel the calamity of civil war and perhaps you know what that's like Perhaps like me, you've done that. You've assumed the worst and acted too rashly, spoken too strongly, judged too harshly. And then when the information comes out, the full story, the pain of that fallout. So there is a godly vigilance that is a feature of a true worshipping community. And it's balanced by restraint. And thirdly, a true worshipping community exhibits a godly anxiety a godly is there such a thing as a godly anxiety doesn't god's word tell us not to be anxious as it turns out faithfulness is at the forefront of the eastern tribes minds too they have a godly anxiety for the pure worship of god just like their western brothers do and in in the explanation that they give we see a happy irony don't we the rest of Israel sees this altar and they fear that it's an, ex- an expression of infidelity, a sign that, that their eastern 
brothers have turned away from God, while the eastern tribes affirm it as a means of preventing infidelity, a, a way of making sure they don't turn away from God. Like their fellow Israelites, they still worship who? They say it there, don't they? Yahweh, the God of gods. Verse 22. And because they still worship Yahweh, they know that nothing is hidden from him, that he will use supernatural means to reveal and judge sin if necessary. And so verse 23. May the Lord himself hold us to account. If what they've done is wrong, God will punish them. But he doesn't, does he? Because what they've done is not wrong. This replica altar. It's significant, I think, that it's a replica, that it looks obviously pretty much exactly like the one in Shiloh. It's not for sacrificing. It's for testifying. Not for sacrificing, it's for testifying. What do they say in verses 27 and 28? It is a witness, a witness between us and you. What's it a witness of? Well, firstly, it's, a, it's an internal witness for the eastern tribes of their ongoing commitment to God, a reminder to themselves of who God is, of what he's done, and their ongoing need to, to sacrifice, to give him thankful obedience, to do so in his presence, they say, don't they? That means at Shiloh. They have every intention of doing that rightly. So it's a witness to themselves. But secondly, it's a witness to their Western brothers, to the Western brothers' commitment to them. Israelite unity across the Jordan. The Jordan is a significant dividing line in the promised land. As one writer points out, it's a bit difficult for those of us who live in, in a bridge culture where even the mightiest, deepest rivers and gorges are spanned by bridges. To appreciate what a barrier the Jordan Valley and the Jordan River at the bottom of it was. A barrier to physical unity, a barrier to communication. And so the eastern tribes, the eastern tribes are worried that this is going to be an issue in the, in the future. And the Jordan, if you also remember, it represented a significant, a significant spiritual line, a significant salvation line. Crossing it was a big deal. The first four chapters of Joshua all build up to the crossing of the Jordan. It wasn't really until they crossed the Jordan that it felt like the, the conquest proper was underway that it felt like they were in the promised land. And so the eastern tribes see all these factors and they have a godly anxiety that they're going to be left on the outer spiritually. The future generations will see the Jordan as this unbreachable line, like a spiritual tribal Berlin Wall. Those of you who have lived through, who lived through and are aware of the history of the Cold War and how unbreachable that Berlin Wall was, how it split Germany in half in every way that they may see future generations, the Jordan, like that, that cuts the people of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh off from identifying with God's people. If anything were to lead a whole two and a half tribes to turn away from worshipping the Lord, it would be just such a rejection. And so the altar is to remind the Western tribes that they're all one in Yahweh. And they're all one in the Lord. Because we stand, centuries later, seeing the true fulfillment of that unity, because that's a wonderful picture that they hope for, the eastern tribes. And it's an even greater, even grander picture that even the most faithful Israelite at this time could not have imagined. The group of us who went recently to base camp at Katoomba, the KCC motto, all one in Christ Jesus. All one in Christ Jesus. 
not only a people of God made up of Israelites, united in their faithful worship of the one true Lord, but a people of God made up from every nation, language, tribe and tongue, united in their worship of the one true Lord, Jesus. So they're the three features of a faithful worshipping community. There's an expectation of fidelity, a godly expectation. There is a godly vigilance that people do worship God as he ought to be worshipped and a godly anxiety that we don't turn away or be turned away ourselves from right worship of God. So what about right worship today then? How does this help us understand maybe where we started, some of the anxieties we feel? Well, today, it's a reminder to us that it's not about the externals. There is an externality to the Israelite worship that in our experience has been fulfilled. So it's not that there is no room for worship wars, but just that if we are going to go to war over worship, really let it be about the right thing, the main thing. What does right worship look like today? Well, first of all, it's in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. You may remember Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well, where they talked about this. These are two people, Jews and Samaritans, who have all this history about what it means to be God's people and what it means to worship God. And the woman says to Jesus in this conversation, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or that mountain. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We live in that hour. Unlike the formalities of Israelite worship, God's people today worship in spirit and in truth, not on this mountain or that, not at Mount Zion or Mount Ararat, not in, at Shiloh or at Gilead. Because of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can worship, we can worship wherever and whenever. And so we ought to hold lightly to matters of worship form, whether we worship in a certain building or use certain instruments or worship on a certain day. We worship in the Spirit. That's a wonderful blessing of being people in Christ. But we also worship in truth. There is still a shape to our worship. It needs to be the worship of God as he has made himself known. And that is why God's word forms the basis of our meeting, of our gathering together here at church. That's why we do things like Paul led us through earlier in the saying of the Apostles' Creed. Because we need to know the truth in order to worship in spirit and in truth. It's why the content of worship songs matter. And because we worship in spirit and truth, we are reminded that this is well and truly an all-of-life activity. Our sacrifice is reframed, isn't it? As Paul reminds the Roman church in chapter 12. It's reframed as thankful obedience. He writes to the Roman Christians, he says, In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Responding to God's grace in light of God's mercy. 
So right worship today is in spirit and in truth. And finally, ultimately, right worship is always a matter of the heart. Remember Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart. When Jesus is asked in Matthew chapter 22, what's the greatest commandment, what does he say? He quotes Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And so while it's simplistic to say that worship is love, it is a fact that what we love most will determine what we genuinely worship. What we love most will determine what we genuinely worship. Bob Coughlin, a pastor and songwriter with Sovereign Grace Ministries, he makes this point really well in his book titled Worship Matters, speaking primarily to those involved in, in church worship leading, but also to all Christians. He writes, God wants us to love him more than our instruments and music, more than our possessions, food and ministry, more than our wife or husband and children, more than our own lives. That doesn't mean we can't love anything else or that we shouldn't love anything else, but we can't love anything in the right way unless we love God more. Our desires will be out of whack. We'll look to temporary pleasures like concerts, video games, travel and sports to fulfill eternal desires. We'll love things that aren't as worthy as God to be loved. How do I know what I love most? By looking at my life outside of Sunday morning. What do I enjoy most? What do I spend the most time doing? Where does my mind drift to when I don't have anything to do? What am I passionate about? What do I spend my money on? What makes me angry when I don't get it? What do I feel depressed about when I don't have? Or do I fear losing the most? Our answers to those questions will lead us straight to the God or gods that we worship. So we need our vision to be filled God's love and faithfulness. That is what engenders a response of love and faithfulness. And of course, we have the greatest means of remembering, the greatest witness to who God is, the cross. Fill your vision with the cross, which stands as both the altar upon which the ultimate sacrifice was made and as a witness to that sacrifice. We're about to do the Lord's Supper. That is a witness, isn't it? like that altar that the Eastern tribes built, pointing beyond itself to who God is and what he's done. What does a true worshipping community look like? One that has an expectation of fidelity, grounded in responding to God's grace. There's a godly vigilance that characterizes God's people. And a godly anxiety. And an anxiety that finds its rest in the cross of Christ. May that be true of us. Please pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are worthy to be worshipped and that you have shown us the way of worship. Help us to be a true worshipping community that loves you more than anything else. Lord, you know how hard that is in our lives. Work in our hearts to direct us to Jesus. And may everything else flow from that. It's in his name we pray.